I'm Dr. Sarah Hales Britton. I'm Luke Patrick. And I'm Sam Siegel. What's up, y'all? Hey, I guess we don't do intros now. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, Sam, I just thought you, I just assumed you were doing it. But uh, hey, guys, oh. welcome to Greased Lightning, uh, <laughs> the podcast where we talk about myth and movies and forget to properly introduce ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> you know, growing pains. Yeah. Hey, we um, did the introduction part. We got our names out there. We just didn't yeah. say why we're all gathered until a distressing yeah. amount of time after that. So, you know, I I feel like it keeps the people in suspense. Yeah. You know, who I know who these people are, but why are they talking in my ears? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always sort of a, a fun thing to do. Um yeah. so Sarah, what are we talking today? So today, our myth is uh, the story of Pygmalion, who has Ooh. one of the best names in all of Greek mythology. Uh, have either of you ever heard of Pygmalion or know anything about that story? No. Not, not, so, a, not even a bit. So, so to take Luke's favorite question, and I'm sorry to take this from you, Luke, what is your relationship with Pygmalion? Ooh. A powerful name. Uh... The, the question of what one's relationship is like with Pygmalion uh, is a distressing question, as you will uh, come to find out. Um, but um, I, I first learned this story in my undergraduate um, classical myth course. That's uh, also the first time that I saw the movie that we watched for this episode, uh, because okay. it, it relates to that myth. Um, so that's the first time I um, heard it. And it's it's just one of those stories that's very uh, quirky and strange, and it's a case of um, a love story in myth that actually, at least on the surface of things, works out positively, which hmm. is very yeah. unusual in Greek myth. Usually somebody's raped, or somebody dies, or somebody turns into a tree to avoid being raped, and like lots of bad things happen in hey, myth relationships. That- that third one sounds uh, a pretty wacky. Mm-hmm. So this, this though, is a great little um, accidental segue uh, <laughs> into the, the source material for this myth. Uh, so we get the story of Pygmalion in The Metamorphoses, which is by Ovid. Um, have either of you heard of Ovid or ever read any of his stuff before? We, we are OVID? sort of... ID. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've I think I've seen the name. That's that's it. Yeah, we we are certifiably is, idiots over here. So yeah, this is Luke and me at our dumbest. <laughs> yeah, I hope. <laughs> well, I have to say, uh, continuing with the hashtag bad classicist trend, uh, my knowledge of Ovid is very much lacking. Um, so. Uh, I have read bits and pieces of the Metamorphoses. I've never read the whole thing. Uh, for several summers in a row, I told myself that I, this was the year I was finally going to read, at least in translation, you know, read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have never done it. <laughs> Maybe now that I have finished <laughs> school, I'll get around to doing it. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so far it hasn't happened. But um, so so yeah, we get the story of Pygmalion from Ovid's Metamorphoses, um, where we also get the story of people turning into trees to avoid being raped. Um, mm, okay. The notes in my translation of the Metamorphoses uh, say that the story of Pygmalion is older than Ovid and that the version he 
learned and, you know, riffed off of was that uh, Pygmalion was the king of, king of Cyprus and he cohabitated for several years with a statue of Venus. Hmm. Okay. Normal thing to do. Um, like you do. Yeah. Uh, apparently, the the uh, the scholarly hypothesis behind this is that it's um, part of like a ritualized marriage between a priest king and a god, and that that's Ooh, the origin okay. of the story. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, like I said, that's not Ovid's version. That's um, the the other version. And the only text I could find with that version was actually um, much later than Ovid. So we're just going to stick with Ovid's version because it's more fun. Um, Okay. (laughs) Just a little bit about who Ovid is first. Um, So he's a Roman poet, which means he's writing in Latin. Um, He lived during the reign of Augustus, who was the first emperor of Rome. Rome was a republic up up to this point ruled by a senate right uh and then they decided that they didn't like being republicans and they would rather have um a dictator um who was julius caesar and then they decided that they would like to have about 15 years of civil war and then they decided they were no good on their own they really needed a strong hand and so augustus became the emperor um that's very (laughs) that's a very condensed version of a very complicated period of roman history (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that also sounds uncomfortably similar to the modern Republican Party in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't going to yeah. say it, but it is. We're seeing but, some parallels. You know, we're seeing <laughs> some stuff. You know how people will frequently say, like, uh, and they mean it as a good thing, that the U.S. is sort of based off of Republican Rome. It's like, that's mm-hmm. if you actually study Republican Rome, that's not great. And the parallels, mm. not great. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, it's icky. Um, the one good thing, though, to come out of Augustus was lots of patronage for the arts. Um, okay. And so there's a ton of poetry being written at this time. And so Augustus had his little circle, um, his inner circle of artistic buds who wrote poetry. And we'll probably talk about them later. Um Virgil, who wrote the Aeneid, was one of those guys um, in Augustus's inner circle. And then there was this other circle um, who were sort of on the outskirts. They were sort of frenemies with the other poets. Their patron, um, who supported them and sort of gained prestige by associating with these poets, um, was a guy named Masala, sort of also a frenemy of Augustus. Um, So Ovid is part of Masala's circle of poets. Um, along with gotcha. some of the other great um, love poets of, of the time. So, um, like I said, Ovid is living during this period, end of the first century BCE, beginning of the first century CE. So this is the turnover um, gotcha. in time periods. Um, by 8 CE, um, despite not being a part of the Augustan inner circle, Ovid is the preeminent poet in Rome. He is the mm-hmm. guy. Same okay. year... He's exiled very abruptly to the Black Sea, which is the far, far edge of the Roman Empire. Uh, as far mm. as a guy born and raised in the heart of Italy is concerned, it's completely uncivilized, middle of nowhere. It's mm. the cruelest place to stick a guy who was so immersed in high living city life. Um, Damn. Yeah. We, we also don't exactly know why he was exiled. Um, he, he writes this work called the Tristia, which 
meets sadness uh, while he's exiled. Oh, no. um, and he does die in exile, by the way. He's out there for about almost 10 years before he dies. Um, he, so he writes this work and he says that the reason he's been exiled is because of Carmen, which is the word for poetry, and error, so some sort of indiscretion. Um, the poetry part totally makes sense because his poetry tends to be kind of raunchy. Um, he wrote a seduction manual and Augustus was the like, bring back traditional Roman morality family values guy. So hmm. writing a manual about how to seduce well-born maidens and then leave them before they can wrap, like rope you into marriage is not gonna go over well with Augustus. You're, you're telling me that this is the first pickup artist? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first one to actually like write a how-to manual on it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Did he talk about negging? Okay, Sam. Um, I'm not a cool person, so I'm gonna need you to tell me what that means. <laughs> okay. Well, let me let me put on my uh, my incel fedora for just yeah. a moment. Sam, would you um, would you actually just neg me? Can you neg me real quick? Yeah. Yeah. You know. Um. It's really brave of you to to wear that T-shirt because you know most people can't pull off something like that. Mmm, classic neg. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, because yeah, now I feel just great about myself, and I'm mm-hmm. vulnerable to Sam's advances. He's he's yes. sort of opened me up uh, by being by being pretty mean to me just then, mm-hmm. uh, but in a subtle <laughs> sort of way. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, I have to say, I've only read a little bit of the, the, the seduction manual is called the Ars Amatoria, which is the art of love. Um, it, I've only read bits and pieces of it. Um, Mm -hmm. but it was a lot of like how to sort of like sneakily get a girl's attention and maybe get a little of like sneaky heavy petting in while you're in the arena watching some games. Okay. Uh, So, and how you know not to get caught by her father or brother or whoever's brought her to the to the arena? Uh, Is it just like bring a blanket and put it over both your laps? Like... <laughs> yeah, we could make this much shorter. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's that's the kind of uh love poetry he was writing he wrote love poetry was elegiac poetry was extremely popular in rome at this time Mm -hmm. lots of people were doing it but ovid's was definitely the raunchiest so like it makes sense that he would be sort of singled out for punishment based on that we have no idea what the error or his his indiscretion we have no idea what that was um Hmm. for being the family values guy uh augustus's own family was a little bit of a mess um and his daughter julia also ended up he ended up exiling her as well because she was Hmm. like having lots of affairs very publicly and like attending orgies and all this stuff and so he like made an example out of her so it's it's entirely possible that ovid was like somehow involved in one of the family scandals and Hmm, so in addition to punishing whatever family member was involved he also then exiled Ovid. Um, but yeah, we don't really know. It's one of those like fun uh, ancient history mysteries that we'll never really figure out because the main evidence we have for it is Ovid's own poem about it. And right. he's not explicit about what happened. So, 
Yeah. Hmm. It sounds so, like yeah. maybe he got up to some heavy petting at the arena, but wasn't mm-hmm. as good as he made himself out to be. And was sure sounds he didn't, like he it. didn't set the blanket down uh, <laughs> or something. <laughs> and then he like nagged the wrong person. Yeah, that's my guess. My very stupid, uneducated guess. Yeah. Uh, sounds hey, plausible. Were, were orgies just a normal thing? No. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they were they were normal for the uh very unhappily married, very wealthy, um my dad is the king of morality and traditional marriage kind of people, right? Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> so you're saying They're like preachers' you, kids who lose their minds. If you if you wanted an orgy and you were a person of means, an orgy could be found. But this it is not indeed. a a standard operating practice for most Romans. Like Definitely it's Friday, not. we're gonna go get some tapas and then hit the orgy on the way home, <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not exactly, not exactly. The brothel okay. maybe, Damn. but not the orgy. Mm. Damn. So yeah, so yeah, he's mostly a love poetry guy. Um, but then he has he has all these like love um, love poem works. But then he also has the metamorphoses, um, which means transformations. Um, mm-hmm. And this is the only one of his many works of poetry that's written in hexameters, which is the meter of epic, which we talked about. Um, it's the meter of epic poetry in Greek. It's also the meter of epic poetry in Latin. That works out very nicely. Uh, So all of these stories are myths that involve some sort of transformation. So, uh, for example, Daphne and Apollo is a really famous one. Apollo is chasing Daphne, trying to rape her. She prays to some god or other to rescue her, and they turn her into a tree to keep her from Mm. being raped. Um, several people turn into trees, several people turn into flowers, uh, lots of people turn into birds. Um, there's all kinds of interesting things. Um, so there's, it's in 15 books, um, which like in this translation that I have works out to about 375 pages of English. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so it's a, it's a big work, but in, in it's, it is an epic. It's written in the meter of epic. Um, and it's sort of a weird subject matter for epic so it's it's one of those works of classical literature that gets talked to death uh and studied to death but it it's also really interesting and there's all sorts of little stories in there and myths that we only really like Ovid's our main source for like Pygmalion Mm -hmm. um, and like a lot of others um he deals a lot with the the boundaries between the divine and the human and between animate and inanimate objects, uh, humans and the rest of the natural world. Um, there's lots of internal narrators, not instead of just the omniscient one. Um, so it's a very complex work. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's quite the trip. Um, and I, I really liked having an excuse to pull it out for this today. Um, so this, this story of Pygmalion that we're talking about mm-hmm. today comes from book 10 of the Metamorphoses. So we're about two thirds of the way through. All of book 10 is really the story of Orpheus, um, who loses his wife Eurydice twice. Maybe sometime we'll talk about that. Uh, 
And after he loses her the second time, he then sings. The rest of book 10 is his song, his final song before he dies. Um, it's He's doing this sort of in mourning for his wife. Uh, mm-hmm. And he sings about all of these sort of weird and tragic love stories. And in the middle of them is Pygmalion, which is like the only one that on the surface of things, like I said, seems to work out for everybody. Um, And it's sort of situated in the middle of all these other tragic love stories that Orpheus is singing about. Uh, So who is Pygmalion in this version? He is pretty much the original incel. Um, He's a dude. Yeah, he's dude in Cyprus. He looks around at um, all of the women that live in mm-hmm. his area, and he is totally disgusted. Um, Cyprus is very uh, famous in the ancient world for prostitution. Um, temple prostitutes were a thing in the ancient world. They like the temples of Aphrodite would employ prostitutes who worked at the temple. Mm. Um, mm. So that um, and Cyprus is like very well known for that. Um, so he's basically extrapolating this to all women are sluts and I hate them all. And cool. Yeah. Uh, so he's not interested. He's sworn off of women. Um, he's never going to get married. They're all gross. Uh, but he's a sculptor. So he has like, has himself like closed up in his house and he sculpts this perfect, beautiful woman out of ivory. Um, this is something that I didn't remember until I was rereading the story this week. Um, I had remembered that she was sculpted out of marble um, until I reread mm-hmm. it, but it's actually ivory, um, which is an incredibly precious material and you know even mm, harder to okay. get your hands on in the ancient world than it is now. Um, this was reserved for sculptures of the gods most of the time. Gold mm. and ivory are for... Uh, divine statues like cult statues that live in the temple mm-hmm. um it's very weird oh, to just be like carving your dream woman out of ivory <laughs> um but that's what he does uh and she's so beautiful and perfect his own artistry is so amazing that he falls in love with this statue that he's just sculpted mm. and he so wants her to be real and he's to the point that he starts being unsure. He like touches the statue and he's like not sure if she's made of ivory or like flesh because he's so in his head about this. He's so desperate for her to be real. Um, he gives her gifts. He clothes the statue, puts jewelry on her, uh, lays her out on a couch with uh, the purple cloth, which is very expensive. That's the that color is normally reserved for royalty because it's so expensive to dye things purple. Um, he talks to her all the time. He kisses her. Um, it's getting real weird up in Pygmalion's yeah. house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> getting getting real twisted. Um, until uh, at the festival of uh, Venus slash Aphrodite. Um, in Ovid says she's Venus, right? Because he's writing in Latin. And that's the Latin name for Aphrodite. Mm-hmm. But it's the same goddess. Um, so they're at the festival of Venus. Um, and he's at the temple... And he's too embarrassed to pray that Venus will make the statue come to life and marry him. Uh, he does at least have enough self-awareness to be <laughs> embarrassed by that. Um, <laughs> uh, but so he says, he prays that Venus will grant him a wife who is uh, similar to his ivory girl or like a likeness mm. of his ivory girl. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, was course, this was this it. like a like a public thing? Like you sort of are at a festival and you have to like shout. Oh, okay. So that you don't have to yeah. like shout it, but he was. I think yeah. The uh, the implication is that he's saying this out loud. Okay. Mm, so okay. Good on your boy that. for having enough self awareness to be like. Maybe I shouldn't scream about how I want this goddess to turn my statue into a real live woman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it is it is public. So he that's what he prays for. But Venus knows what he really wants. Um and so when he goes home, he lays down on the couch next to his statue, starts to kiss the statue's face, and uh she's warm. She's not cold anymore and gradually she warms up the ivory softens and she becomes real she becomes a real living breathing human woman uh and the end of this the end of this little story that it's only about um two pages long in the english translation um Mm -hmm. she becomes real um she is of course not like those slutty temple prostitutes she's very modest and she doesn't actually say anything all she like the most she does is make eye contact with him very shyly uh venus blesses the marriage and nine months later they have a daughter Mm. venus goofed on this one i feel pretty confident in saying (laughs) Poor, poor choice she makes a lot of questionable choices in myth actually Huh, okay. Yeah, because uh, you should not reward this man. Um, no, you should drive him into the sea, <laughs> is what I'm getting. <laughs> take I would his have fedora. to that. Yeah, take his fedora and <laughs> chuck it straight into the sea. <laughs> I, oh, I love that. I have a dumb question. Can I ask a dumb question? I would love it if you would ask a dumb question. Okay. So I know that in a lot of like pagan mythologies, like gods do things because like it's their motif and like they the more people that worship them for the specific things that they do, the more power they have and that kind of thing. So what is what is Venus's motive for for turning this statue real? Why why does she do the crazy things she does? Well, that's part of it is is the prestige. Um Mm. A lot of there are stories where Greek gods get really angry and um, will do tricky things or punish people or whatever because that person isn't giving them the credit they think they deserve. So, for example, when Aphrodite or Venus tends to get mad the most is when young women will devote themselves to Artemis, who is a chaste god. She's a virgin goddess. So girls will pledge perpetual virginity. They don't want to get married. They don't want to do any of that. Um, and that will make Aphrodite or Venus really mad. And so she will like lay a trap um, for this girl to fall in love. Um, and then mm. it won't work out well because we're punishing her, right? We don't want her to actually enjoy falling in love. <laughs> um, right. So there's a lot of things like that. Um, there's also just the fact that like eternal life gets boring. Mm, and so like half the time the gods do what they do to humans just to fuck with them because it's entertaining so this is sort of a combination of that you know uh pygmalion has sworn off women but now he's fallen in love with a statue that's fucking hilarious uh (laughs) we also like 
now he's he's coming around to love so we're going to give him what he wants right so so now he's finally paying attention to venus Mm -hmm. um and then yeah also it's just it's just entertainment for her (laughs) okay i got you this makes sense a time before netflix so they kind of got to do whatever yeah and and so their concept of the gods was I'm gathering very different from like our concept of like God in that these sound like very flawed vaguely shitty sort of deities deeply flawed deeply shitty Um, the reason that Plato didn't think that young students should study poetry which is you know stories about the gods for the most part is because it will encourage immoral behavior <laughs> like mm. using the gods okay. as examples for your behavior uh is not a good thing um the greeks were afraid of their gods and sometimes entertained by them but they didn't really love their gods um gotcha they had you know at best you have a uh like a tit for tat sort of you've reached an understanding with your god where you perform certain sacrifices, right? You carry out these things and they make your life not crappy. Mm. Um, and occasionally even do something good for you. <laughs> but it's okay. not its not at all like a lot of modern religions' conceptions of God or of humans' relationships with God. Right. And so, like, is there a God that, like, people typically had positive feelings for is there like a a sort of like comforting god or like a like a gentle loving one or are they all just like uh you're my action figures i don't know about gentle loving but um i guess the best you get is probably the healing gods so um apollo does some healing but he's also scary um there's a god who was originally um, a human. The, the legend or the myth, right, is that he was a human being, and then the gods loved him so much that after he died, they like brought him back and made him um, immortal. Um, named Asclepius, and then the Latin name mm-hmm. for him is Asclepiades, and he's a healer, and that's all he does. So, like, the mm-hmm. way you hang out with Asclepius is you go and, like, if you're sick or you're injured or whatever, you go and spend the night in his temple. And hopefully you'll have a vision of the god and you'll be healed. Um, that's okay. probably the closest to like an exclusively positive relationship that you could have with a god. Hmm. That's buck wild. That's pretty bleak. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's super bleak. And it's even scarier when you realize that, um, and this is like something that's relevant for the story here, is that... Um, the whole reason to have a cult statue in your temple is so that the god can come visit. Like, if the god wants to come down to your temple or to your town, they can inhabit the statue that you have mm. made and set up there for them. Ooh, so Ostensibly yeah. to, like, beat the piss out of you? Or, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Or just come down and yell at you about how you're not uh performing sacrifices correctly <laughs> Oof. yeah that's rough man yeah yeah so there's like this in um in greek religion there's this ambiguity 
around images of the gods. Um, is it an image or is it the god? And it's similar to what's happening in the story with Pygmalion, right? Is she ivory or is she a girl? Um, mm, okay. the, the transition or the confusion about which is which she actually is um, is not as crazy as it sounds to us when you um, look at all of the ways that religious viewing and erotic viewing kind of get mixed together in the ancient world. So there is the fact that like the ambiguity between statue and living being is a big part of the religious understanding of cult statues. Um, it at any life, this inanimate object could become real and living and start moving and talking. Um, but it's also, it's unusual for statues of humans. Um, so that's another sort of odd thing about this. But then there's also the fact that like, um, whispering sweet things, giving gifts, um, dressing up the statue, these are all ritualized uh, forms of worship in the mm -hmm. ancient world. Mm -hmm. You bring votive gifts and offerings to the temple. Uh, there was a whole um, annual festival in Athens where the, the statue of Athena in the Parthenon was like she got a new outfit they would like create and, and like they, they undress her they take off the dress she's wearing they wash it they fix it up and they put it back on her and that's like a big ceremony uh so the dressing of a statue is both religious and an erotic activity in this story right um and all the, the like nice things that he says to her and things like that um so and he's and she's made out of ivory, right? She's not made out of a material that you would usually use for a just like a regular old statue of a person, like wood or marble. She's made of ivory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, she, uh, yeah, and she's the fact that she has to be clothed by Pygmalion is also sort of a weird thing um, because that indicates that he sculpted her nude, but that's not how you would normally sculpt a young woman. Like we have sculptures of just like regular human girls and women from Greek times um, and some mm -hmm. from Roman too. And they were usually dressed. Um, mm. Nudity is reserved for like gods and heroes um, and sometimes insane people. Uh, it's like a way to indicate <laughs> that you're losing your mind is that your clothes are falling off. Okay, that makes <laughs> Wild sense. Wild pairing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, there's like a lot of weird things going on in this story with like uh -huh. with art versus life, with uh, like regular girl versus divine girl of some kind. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just it, like very messed up ideas about women, which you know is on brand for Ovid. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a really on the surface, it's a very simple story of boy makes statue, boy loves statue statue becomes girl um but it's got a whole lot going on <laughs> underneath yeah yeah woof yeah um now did their kid go on to do anything or is it just like yeah my mom was a statue and my dad's a piece <laughs> of shit <laughs> uh the girl has an island named after her um her name Pretty is good. Okay. so yeah she gets an island named after her um the uh, the way Ovid sort of weaves these stories together um, is that usually there's some sort of like relationship between the people in one story and then the people that at the beginning of the next story. 
So, like, the way mm-hmm. that Pygmalion ends and the next story starts is that um, an infant girl was born, Paphos, from whom the island takes its name, and then we go into the next story. Her son was Cyniros, who might have been numbered among the fortunate had he been childless. And then you get this really awful story about Cyniros's kid, uh, who mm. turns into a tree uh, at the end. Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so... So this is the main thing we know about Paphos, right? Is an island is named after her and her granddaughter um, has a really sad story. <laughs> mm. Okay, so I, I'd like to ask a question of both of you. Mm-hmm. Would you rather be turned into a tree, a flower, or a bird? Hmm. That is a good question. Hmm. Okay, I think I have an answer, but it's not what uh-huh. you think. Um, oh, okay. I think a tree. I think a tree, my dude. Um, Walk me through that. Yeah, because that's a real thing. Like, when you die, being mm-hmm. sort of composted and turned into a tree is is pretty... Sure. That's pretty ideal, because then people can, like... You're the giving tree, right? Like, people can come hang out in your shade... Maybe you're a fruit-bearing tree. They can eat the fruit. Uh, that kind of stuff. Like, I don't know. I find that really poetic. Uh, versus, like, being a bird or something. I don't know. I feel like a tree is, is going to last longer and and just be a chiller vibe than anything mm-hmm. else. Fair. Yeah. yeah. I, Very fair. I think I'm also going to... I was going to say bird uh, until I realized that if I were a bird, I would have to... Uh, learn how to eat really gross things um yep. and if you're a tree all you have to do is eat sunshine so i think <laughs> i think i'm also gonna go with tree yeah what about you sam are you it, joining are you joining team tree over here i'm team bird i'm team bird folks <laughs> i want to be a bird Ooh, do tell uh, i i feel like flying would be really fucking fun yeah um, fair fair I I I hope I'd be able to sing good, which I can't do now, and that would be kind of nice. Um, but yeah, the the freedom, the freedom of movement, yeah, I, appeals to me as a as a bird. Um, I would get murdered by a cat probably, um, and that's okay. I think that's fine. Yeah, statistically, uh, that is what's gonna happen to you. I think. Yeah, especially <laughs> since I love cats, and I don't know if I would retain that love as a bird. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but it would, yeah, it would either be cat or it would be uh, flying into a window because someone left their lights on in the winter. Yeah. Yeah. And or like... If, you'll be one of those dead birds somebody finds outside the door. Right. Or if I want to do something like real fucking metal, maybe like flying into a jet engine. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that, could, that could be pretty fucking righteous. Now Take we're down talking. a whole bunch of people with you. Yeah, you know, maybe I'll be the bird that, like, made Sully famous. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a legacy for a bird right there. (laughs) They made a movie about you. (laughs) (laughs) That's See, that's me right there, the one flying into the engine. That's me. Oh, incredible. Just incredible. I'm glad we don't. We all agree, no flowers. So that seems like a shit, a yeah. shit life right there. You're just nobody get, wants to be a flower. You're either gonna get trampled on or picked, or you just have like bees flying up your nose. Yeah, yeah, and or you just die. 
Or that. Yeah. Yeah. Un- unless. Unless. Um, unless you're that corpse flower. And then people will gather like every 10 years or whatever to oh, just marvel yeah. at how stinky you Luke. are. Yeah. Luke, that's a good point. You could be the big special stink flower. You could be the stinky one. And then people will just be like, oh, God, that stinks. And you're like, yeah, man, that's my whole vibe. Wouldn't it be so nice to punish humanity Mm -hmm. every, I don't even know how long, with your putrid stench, and they keep coming back for it. Yeah, just to smell your flower farts. Uh, Oh. Could be cool. That I, I think that's, that's the one powerful. exception. Yeah. Yeah. That would be pretty awesome. Yeah. So, sir, did you have more to say about Pygmalion, or should we talk about the movie now? Uh, I don't think so. I think we can chat about the movie now. Um, I would love to know what you guys thought of this movie. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll, I guess I'll start. So, so we did watch Lars and the Real Girl. I don't know if we mentioned that or not. Mm, yeah. Um throughout this experience I expected this movie to zig and it would zag um, no part of this movie did what I expected it to do and for that I adored it yes this movie is so good <laughs> holy shit Kenna uh, my wife uh, was uh, in the room with me because she maintained that she she was not going to watch it but that she would just be present um, and uh, slowly but surely, she began watching the movie, and she came around on it in a big way. Uh, we both very much enjoyed this. Excellent. I am so happy to hear that. Luke, how about you? It's very similar. I will say this. I like your example of it zagging when I expected it to zig, Sam. Nothing about this. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing about Pygmalion, and basically nothing about Lars and the Real Girl, other than he falls in love with a, a real doll. Um, mm-hmm. And that I expected... I, okay, I have a theory. And my theory is that this movie is fucking awesome because a woman wrote it. Because I think it has a softer, more subtle touch where a dude writer... Like, if we get Ryan Johnson... I think that's his name. The Star Wars guy up in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be nothing but dick jokes... And people like making fun of this guy and that kind of stuff. I think I think the the right woman showed up for the job on this one. Um, yeah, I just really dug it. I think I think like I said, I expected it to be kind of more in that vein, like people making fun of him constantly. Yeah. Um, yeah, or him having sex with this doll and it being kind of creepy. But it wasn't. It was this really heartwarming, heartfelt adventure uh, where this guy deals with some emotional issues and the entire town comes together to, like, help him. Um, It is so touching. Yes. And I almost hate that I'm saying that, but it is genuinely, like, heartwarming to watch this movie. Yes, exactly. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you guys liked it. I think I said this last time. This is like a top ten movie for me, and my husband I've... hates it. So I need people <laughs> to talk about this movie with. <laughs> what? Why? I I almost want you to b- drag him into this room and explain why. <laughs> I have no idea what his problem is because I think it's totally delightful. 
I'm still not convinced that Ryan Gosling can really do anything other than brood, but this is one of the best movies out there to me. It's just, oh, yeah. it's, it's funny and it's touching and it's, you know, it deals with these really serious issues, but in a way that, uh, like, it keeps things, for the most part, it keeps things light, right? You don't feel like you need to go stare at the wall for several hours after you watch this guy deal, work through his emotional issues. Um, right. Like Luke said, the whole town rallies around this guy who's having a hard time, and they just, like, meet him where he is mm-hmm. and help him through his stuff. And all of them end up end up better off for it yeah it is it's um that whole experience of like watching what you know what i expected to be like ryan gosling in a mustache being ridiculed by the residents of a small wisconsin town yeah like it was really affecting Mm -hmm. to to see them all like this like genuine expression of love for him and just being like, no, we're going to accept that Bianca is real. And we're just going to go with it um, to help this guy that we all love out. And God damn it. God damn it. Is it good? Yes. It's there's nothing like it. Yeah. It's such yeah. a unique story. And I really, really appreciate your breakdown of Pygmalion because, again, I had no context on that at all. Um, and it is fascinating to compare them because I think she took something that was, you know, pretty incel focused um, mm-hmm. and really worked out for said incel and then turned it into this like really cool study of, um, okay, I'll put it this way. This is what I said after we finished the movie, which is, I think we all have our Biancas. Like we all have our things that if people would just rally around them and be accepting of them, be tolerant of them then life would be better for everybody. Um, and so it's cool to see that message like get pumped out of something like Pygmalion, which is just about a horny incel who really loves his ivory mm-hmm. statue. Like, that's yeah. awesome. Can, can I get kind of earnest for yeah. a oh, moment? Yes. Okay, so Luke, I'm glad you said that like we all have our Biancas. Um, because watching this movie um, kind of made me realize that like, I've got uh, some, I would say, real bad OCD, mm-hmm. um, and it made me realize that, like, all the people who just look past the uh, distressing amount of hand-washing that I do, and the crushing need for hand sanitizer that I have and all that, like, that is an expression of love that I have never recognized. And so, like, that aspect of this movie really hit me. In a, in a really big way and, and like made me I think more appreciative of people who will meet you where you are yes and just like look past your your personal Bianca which is again a lot of hand washing <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's really beautiful yeah yeah Aww. I got I got a little verklempt I'll be mm-hmm. honest <laughs> Aww. And I was like, oh, this is very special. This is such a special movie. Yeah. Yeah, I so, I think what Luke said about uh, it's a good thing that this, this movie is as good as it is because it was written by a woman. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I, this could have been such a gross, like, male gazy kind of 
movie. Mm-hmm. We sort of get a taste of that, right, with Lars's um, cubicle mate, who is yes. the one that introduces him to the website yes. of build your own sex doll, right? Where it's just like construct a blank canvas to be whatever you want. Um, and in his version of that, it's really gross. And in Lars's version, it's like, I need to work through some shit. So let me build something that will help me work through my shit. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and it ends up being, yeah, this really beautiful relationship that is not nearly as creepy as you would think on the surface looking at this guy who carries his sex doll around to all his parties that he goes to. Um, yeah. It could well, have been I so think... awful. And it ended up being wonderful. And I, I like how those two are... Um compared to each other I, the word now escapes me but like when his co-worker is looking at sex, doll, sex dolls on the internet the primary image you see is this like disembodied torso with like no head no legs no arms and it is this very like dehumanizing sort of thing and your first interaction with Lars treating Bianca as real is talking mm-hmm. yeah and like listening to her and and I like how those are what is juxtaposed? There yeah. it is. <laughs> There's our AP English word. Hey, <laughs> look at me. <laughs> Proven I got a little bit of IQ points rattling around in there. Yeah, somewhere. Uh, yeah. 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 I, I'm really I curious that. if y'all have favorite a favorite scene in this movie. Because I think I do. Um, but I'm really curious what y'all's would be. Hmm. It's hard to pick a favorite yeah. scene. I think um I think probably the uh the party that he takes Bianca to is up there mm. in my favorite scene. Yes. Uh I will say my favorite line is when they very first take Lars and Bianca to the doctor mm-hmm. and uh Gus and um Karen are uh talking to the doctor about what's going on with Lars what like why is he doing this and she says he has a delusion (laughs) and Gus says what the hell is he doing with the delusion for Christ's sake (laughs) 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 it's like such a like a we are a we are a down-to-earth practical midwestern family we don't have delusions (laughs) exactly I just love that line and then the way that he comes around of course starting from that point is just wonderful but yeah i mm-hmm. think the party is my favorite scene mm, so the party's good. really great especially um when you see bianca dancing uh and and you don't see her dance partner for a second and you're like okay so he's just dancing with bianca and then you see that it's the the host's husband mm-hmm. and it's just like again yeah. this like very special just like full-on acceptance yeah um, i think I think my favorite. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. yeah no one's it's really hard to pick a favorite. Uh, okay. I, I think I have it. And it's when uh, Gus and Karen are talking to, like, the church group about it. And they're all like, huh, I don't know. And then the woman whose name <laughs> escapes me is just like, who gives a shit? Yeah. Yes. Let's fucking do it. <laughs> He's nice. I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. She's and the way awesome. she's like, all of you have family skeletons. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> don't be weird about this one. <laughs> yeah. Th- yeah. She's like, Albert, your cousin's a 
piece of shit. Like, <laughs> and we ignore it. <laughs> it's just like, fuck yes. It's so powerful. Yeah. yeah. Really great stuff. Um, I think mine, weirdly, is the scene where uh, it's really Fargo-esque. They're in like a field, uh, a road in a field. Mm-hmm. And he gets out of the car and he's having a screaming argument with Bianca where she yes. is she is the one in control. Like she's he's the one saying, like, please stop yelling. Um, mm-hmm. It's clear that she's she's the antagonist and the one in control in this, because like you said earlier, Sam, this was a zag when I was expecting a zig because like the whole rest of the movie up to this point has been like him falling in love and you as the audience mm-hmm. like coming to accept him. And, like, view yes. this as a really beautiful thing. But then you realize, like, ah, oh, shit. This guy's, like, in love with a real doll. And he's dealing with some stuff. Like, he's really yeah. going through it. It's not just, like, this. She is not a facsimile for, like, the perfect woman that he hasn't found in real life. Kind of Pygmalion style. Like, she's an outlet for him to really go through his own horrible trauma. Um, yeah, I don't. Know, it was a really affecting scene. I just really dug it. Well, and like, I like everything with the doctor. I yes. thought was just brilliant. Cause again, oh my God, yes. If we could get fucking doctors who would just meet you where you are, and like accept what you're dealing with, and and work with you, you can get shit like Lars dealing with this very very. Uh, serious trauma in like and getting treatment in a way that he otherwise would not have gotten yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and that's one of the other really beautiful things that i like about this movie too especially juxtaposed with pygmalion is that it's not that lars it's not like lars doesn't like women like luke said and has made himself a perfect Mm -hmm. woman it's that he loves the women in his life and he's fucking terrified for them like yeah. it, it's yes. I don't it's I don't know if it's ever explicitly said that like his his mother died giving birth to him and mm-hmm. it has affected his family in such a he he wears that blanket that she knit for him when she was pregnant with him around his neck all mm-hmm. the time it's had a profound effect on him and his brother and their dad and it's now it's shaping all these fears with Karen being pregnant his sister-in-law uh so he's he's deathly afraid of things happening to the women in his life uh, because of what's happened before. So it ends up, yeah, it's like this, uh, it's a it's a love and respect for people in his life that's that's causing this sort of like crushing uh, distress. Right. And, and yeah. yeah, the fact that he has, the fact that he fights with Bianca, the fact that he proposes to Bianca and she says no. Yes. Uh, yes. I, I love that twist. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I just, I love all of it because, again, like, you get that, like, Bianca is, in that sense, like, an antagonist, but also uh, I kind of like, uh, towards the end when um, they're talking with the doctor, Patricia Clarkson, and she's like, oh, no, he's in the driver's seat. Yeah. He's the one who said she's dying. He's the one who did this. And so, like that puts a little bit of a twist on it, particularly, like, when she says no to his proposal. Yeah. It's like, he's steering this. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you see those, like, negative things as, like, genuine progress for him, and I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and again, the, the juxtaposition with Pygmalion, where 
he's just horny. It's just mm-hmm. a horny man who hates <laughs> right. women. Right. Uh, versus, uh, like a just a scared guy. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, that that breakdown that he has in the doctor's office. Um, where like you realize that's what's sort of powering all of this is, yeah. is this genuine fear for the well-being of the women in his life. Yeah, it's so good. It's yeah. so yeah. good. It's which beautiful. I hadn't, I hadn't really put that together until you were talking about it just now, Sarah. But the fact that Bianca dies at the end of this does bring that trauma full circle for him. Where, mm-hmm. like you were saying, he's so terrified of losing the women in his life or them being hurt that like this allows him an outlet for that to like deal with the actual loss of a woman mm-hmm. in his life also we get that beautiful funeral scene where the turnout was pretty fucking great for a sex doll yeah. the first time i watched this i sobbed in the funeral mm. scene oh my yeah god and it's it's so wonderful because like like unlike in the myth right bianca does not become real she dies but mm-hmm. at the same time like she has become a real person for everyone in the town like right. she yes. has been participating in all of these different activities around town and like when they're you see the phone chain when bianca is in the mm-hmm. hospital and everybody is like really upset about this news that bianca is dying and they she's become part of their community they all mourn her um the first time that Bianca and Lars fight, that uh, the woman from the church group, whose name I am also forgetting, uh, chews Lars out for yelling at her. She's like, I don't mm-hmm. like your tone. Yes. Bianca's an independent woman. <laughs> and so, like, mm-hmm. she, in this, <laughs> in this other sense, she does become a real person for everyone yeah. in the town, even though yes. she ultimately dies. Okay, so that, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, because it brings me to a question that I had. That, that I want to post to you guys, and it's it's a little heady, okay. so Luke and I will struggle with it. <laughs> um, it. Let's say we all live in the same town, um, which for two of us is going to be very real very soon. Yes, it will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and let's say there is a Bianca situation. If we all agree, if everyone in the town agrees that Bianca is real, is she then real? Hmm. Hmm. Cause I I say yes. Cause it's like with currency. A dollar is only a dollar because we all agree that a dollar has that value. Yeah. Yeah, that's a so good if point. We all, if we all agree that a thing is real, isn't it isn't it real? Hmm. I suppose it is. I mean, in like a physical sense, right? You're never gonna yeah, get she, Bianca like to she doesn't eat. have a <laughs> yeah, she doesn't have a pulse. Yeah. <laughs> but I think yeah, in in the ways that actually matter, I think yeah, I'm with you, Sam. Luke, I think so. I live with two lawyers, and I feel like they've infected me because the answer is it depends. Um, <laughs> Uh, Copping out on me, Luke. (laughs) But uh, it depends. Legally, I don't think... No, I don't think so. Um, But I think more interestingly, kind of what you guys are saying, uh, socially, yes. I think she's as real as any other person. Because, like, she got elected to the school board in this movie. Yeah. 
Um, and she's like, you know, going to the hospital to volunteer and stuff. Like, yeah, I think socially she has been accepted as a real person. But I think you've, I think you've hit the root of the myth and the root of the the movie here, Sam. Which is, yeah, like, is she real? Is such a big question in all of this. Um, and I think see, categorically I've, for Lars, yes, the answer is absolutely she's real. But see, I put it to you that even if it's socially accepted, that that, that is the end-all be-all. Because we have so many things that are socially constructed, like, oh, like yeah. race or gender. Sure. That still have, like, even legal yeah. impacts. Oh, for sure. So I think the that, trick would be to get the entire <laughs> so this t- you start with this tiny town in Wisconsin and then mm-hmm. you do a documentary about Lars and you spread it to the nation and we get uh-huh. it we get it hyped enough that we can get like the supreme court to allow him to marry this doll or whatever there you go like yeah realizing every conservative asshole's fear yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i think it's just a matter of the bubble like the socially accepted bubble and if you can mm-hmm. grow the bubble to a to a large enough area surface area then yeah i think she would be real in every capacity and then it wouldn't depend i guess would be my answer. okay yeah okay i'm glad we got there I mm-hmm. yeah yeah i i have another question and this mm-hmm. is a much smaller question as a society where are we on mustaches <laughs> Personally, I am firmly anti-mustache unless it is accompanied by the rest of the beard. Okay, okay, Luke. As as a mustachioed man, but with the rest of the beard, um, I gotta tell you, it's it's like the real temptation to Christ over here every time I trim this thing to be like. <laughs> What if I just shaved it down to the stash? What if I just went for that Tom Selleck? Um, <laughs> but I don't. Ugh. I don't do it. So I guess that tells don't you where I'm at with the mustache. Yeah. Well, I think I think you're both on the right side of history here because I think <laughs> I think if fucking Ryan Gosling cannot pull off the stash, yeah, it is proof positive that it should be cast aside. To the dregs of society that we should all agree as as a as humanity as a planet <laughs> no yes no mustaches yes. leave it in the 80s with the cop shows please just yeah. leave it there i yeah. i love that we've decided like universally between all three of us that falling in love with a real doll is completely acceptable and in mm-hmm. fact, encouraged for this human being. But the mustache, get the fuck out of here. Yep. It's it's a big deal breaker for me, Luke. Yeah. I struggled. I struggled with that fucking mustache the whole movie. Mm-hmm. He, look, he didn't, but he could have fucked that doll to his heart's content, and I wouldn't have had a single goddamn problem with it. The mustache. Yeah. The mustache. I really got hung up on that. Yeah. Yeah, it's not good. It's really not good. No. Do we have any other thoughts about Lars and the real girl? Just a, a small thought that is, um, uh-huh. as a knitter myself, I mm-hmm. could not get enough of all the hand knit items in this movie. 
Um, mm. And it's one of those things that I didn't notice as much the first time I watched it. Um, but now, having knit a lot more, I, I noticed it, you know, immediately with the handmade baby blanket that Lars wears around his neck as a scarf mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, all the amazing sweaters and hats and scarves. And then, you know, when Bianca is sick, the, the knitting, the women come over with food and they're knitting yeah. and they sit around and they just knit um, and be with Lars. Uh, I could not get enough of that. I absolutely love it. And I, um, there's this one sweater in particular that um, the actual human woman that Lars ends up being interested in, Margot, has this sweater mm-hmm. that's got like shades of pink and red and purple stripes on it Mm -hmm. and i found myself looking at that and trying to figure out how i would make that (laughs) Mm, love it (laughs) i know i didn't quite figure it out but so there are some other sweaters in the movie that i was like i could totally make that and in fact i have seen patterns very similar to that (laughs) Ooh, okay. what about the donkey sweater that she wears oh man (laughs) could we commission that yeah hey you buy me the yarn (laughs) I'll make the sweater. <laughs> you, see, I look. I know nothing about knitting, but I do feel like if you asked me to knit you knit someone a, a donkey sweater, I would really struggle <laughs> with that. Oh, you know, such that's, is my love for this movie that I would do well, it. That's powerful. That's powerful <laughs> stuff, and I think that's a great place to to jump off out of here and talk about uh, next week where um, we will be watching 1981's Clash of the Titans oh god total tonal flip huh <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, this yeah. is gonna be wild yeah, yeah. Uh, so I am I am very excited about that but until then uh, folks you can find us on Facebook at Greased Lightning Podcast that's uh, spelled like the country G-R-E-E-C-E-D uh, you can find us on Instagram at Greased Lightning Pod. You can find us on Twitter at Greased Light Pod. Hmm. Oh, beans, I should I should know that. that. I think right. it's Greased Light Pod. <laughs> um, and then uh, you can send us an email at GreasedLightningPod at gmail dot com. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, I think that's all all we got this week, right? Mm-hmm. That's all we got, folks. That's all we got. Well, thanks for listening to another episode, and we'll see you all next time.